Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a bright but cool autumn day here in the capital is Howard Kosky. Howard is the CEO and founder of Marketeer's 4DC Group of Companies, an independent broadcast PR and marketing agency which first established in 1994. Um, Howard, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure for us as well, welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Howard. Um, at this point in the programme, we normally dive straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself as a business owner, just to what extent has the pandemic affected things for you? Um as a pandemic, uh, obviously, when we had the first initial restrictions put in place at the start of the year, uh, we had some concerns because whilst we had sort of looked at flexible working prior um, and obviously market conditions, there was a bit of the unknown. Um, so we had a few weeks of turbulence for no other reason, just a bit of uncertainty. But the the, the positives are that from a technical perspective, we managed to have everyone up and running, working remotely, or 100 odd people uh, with immediate effect, which is great, and all systems held up, which is very positive. And more importantly also, I think everyone's personal resilience, professionalism, and positive attitude has been a, a huge contributing factor in minimizing any disruption. Um, and fortunately for us, because of the, the sectors we operate in and the industry we actually serve, um, we haven't had any many adverse effects from COVID itself in terms of trading. Um, in fact, some of the areas of our businesses, because they're very digital focused, have actually seen an acceleration in their growth. So on a personal level, it's it's been fascinating. Uh, I'm sure in hindsight, we'll look back in many years over this period of time, however long it lasts, and just kind of recognize what a challenge it was, is, and and has been. Um, But at the same time, hopefully applaud ourselves because of the fact we've come through it stronger and actually learned an awful lot more about both our business and the people within it. Mm. You do hear it said, don't you, that you learn more about yourself in times of adversity than when things are going well. And it certainly has seemed to prove the uh, the case here. With regard to what has happened during this time in terms of the transformation of our working practices, we've seen so many people sort of move over toward remote working, many, many businesses. Now, do you see that being something that's going to be here to stay for the long term? Or even when, say, fast forward one or two years, COVID-19 hopefully is no longer an issue. Do you think we'll start to see the conventional office environment start to return in vogue? Um, I've got no doubt from a personal perspective that um, what we're experiencing right now is will in years to come be referenced as a form of revolution in the same way there was the industrial revolution this might be a thing revolution because I think what's been very noticeable is I think everyone's um, 
experiences of technology working has been highly positive. But that's not really, I think, the motivation. I don't even think the motivation is cost savings on rents and, and issues like that. Mm. But I think perhaps people, you know, people who often talk in business about work-life balance. The, the reality is, it's just life. You know, it, work is forms part of just you know of what we do. If we're fortunate enough to be to be in work, um, and for me, the the bit that I've noticed in a lot of the uh, conversations and meetings we've had with a lot of our colleagues is as they've settled into a new routine, they've actually seen the value in not having to commute both in terms of the amount of hours in their day they've got back. They've seen a financial benefit in their pocket in not having the commute. And I think the, the future perhaps will be a hybrid model. Um, and, mm. you know, you hear the reference term of agile working, flexible working, but I think the model moving forward is we've seen companies and organizations where if you're service-based and people can be remote, trust has accelerated amongst colleagues efficiency and productivity has improved through technology but very importantly i think people's quality of life in terms of hours gained to stay with family um to be at home to see children grow up and the stresses and the strains that, that would normally have come from a commute you know i drive into london um and you know the, the one you know whilst i love my job and what i do and the people i work with the one element of of my role that perhaps if i could have changed i would have done was the commute and fortunately um i do still commute but there's a lot less traffic on the road mm. <laughs> um so i i think that the the model of the future will be driven out of technology and companies trusting colleagues and i i see it as a positive and I think the hybrid is probably the most likely outcome, as you say there, just because there are mental health and well-being arguments on both sides. There's the work-life balance benefit of, of course, having the flexibility to work from home, but also at the same time, sometimes there is no replica for that face-to-face social human interaction, and you can get that by one or two days a week going and working in an office premises, for example. Um, speaking of mental health and well-being, of course, which have once again been amplified by the pandemic, how important do you view those aspects in leadership? both in terms of taking responsibility for that of the people who work for you but also your own as well because sometimes as a business leader especially during a crisis you do have to take a step back and take stock yourself yeah i mean it's i suppose if you'd asked me when i started the business 20 odd years ago it, it didn't have the same label then um you know if you were having a bad day or if someone had a bit of a downer it just it was viewed just as just that whereas i think obviously it's a lot more prevalent now it, it's front and center in the agenda amongst many other factors so i think recognizing within our particular uh structure the i think the average age of my colleagues is late 20s early 30s um and you know there is there is a pragmatism and a reality where their well-being is my priority. You know, we as an organisation, we don't manufacture widgets. You know, my people are my asset. You know, it's, it, I've always said to, to, to people, you know, it, it's the one asset that doesn't sit on the balance sheet, yet is the most powerful asset. Um, and so, making sure that everyone in the organisation is in good spirits, is feeling positive, not to the point that you know they're modicoddled or you were on tiptoes, you know, arm around every single day, but making sure that it is something that is an absolute consideration in all planning, in all decisions, in all conversations, is a priority. Because again, you know, not only for the benefit of the individuals, making sure they're in a good place, but when people are feeling positive and happy and smiling, albeit working, you know, remotely at the moment, mm-hmm. you end up with improved productivity as an organisation. 
So it's it's not that we're doing it just for those reasons, but one of the positive outcomes of people being in a very good place is a harmonious working environment where people get on, efficiencies are improved, and, and, and everyone gets a benefit. And I think that that's absolutely right. And you said, of course, that 20 odd years ago when the business was founded, that attitudes toward mental health were very different. Just approaching the past from a little bit of a different angle now and moving away from sort of the doom and gloom of uh, current affairs and COVID. Um, I'm interested to understand how what was the sort of inspiration behind you going it alone and deciding to open your own business? What was the moment the penny dropped where you thought going and doing that, being a leader in my own right, this is going to be the way forward for me? I think from a from a very young age, I kind of had some entrepreneurial character within me. Um, I think my parents, uh, whilst the era I grew up in wasn't the most salubrious, they taught me about hard work and effort. Um, and then, from my perspective, you know, where I was brought up, you there were metaphorically you had two paths you could take in life: one which was earnings perhaps not through the most reputable means and the other was through hard work and graft and you know those those values that are instilled in me is is perhaps what helps set me on the path of you know I would like to see the returns of that level of time and effort invested um and so yeah it's it's you know I was working I I I train I started to train as an accountant um decided that accountancy was not going to be the career for me although the learnings of studying for accountancy have been you know certainly an asset in business um but the decision was you know i just i i, I was in an organization previously certain decisions weren't ones that i were agreeing with and i had a vision for a market and i had a courage of my convictions and decided you know and and at the time um, yes, I just got married and just taken on a mortgage, but in the scheme of size of responsibilities, they weren't insurmountable. Um, and that was the motivation for me to, to go it alone. Mm. And there's been some serious success, of course, um, in the uh, the business um, as well since it did start, um, of course, um, as well as... Um of course, um, being a successful business, there have been several awards that you've um, won as well, Brand Innovator of the Year being one of them. Um, but with regards to um, actually being able to go back, if you could, um, to when you first started the business, armed with the experience you have now, is there anything you'd actually do differently, do you think? It's interesting. It's a question that's often asked. Um, there's two ways of responding to that. One is I wouldn't change anything because I'm, you know, I'm very pleased proud of the achievements of the organization um and to suggest i do things differently would suggest that perhaps you know i'm not i'm not satisfied with where where i and the business are at this moment in time having said that i think if i were to look at myself again the only thing i would talk to myself about would be just to be be even more challenging Mm. um take slightly bigger risks think slightly bigger but I set a bar of where I wanted the business to be. Um, I knew the kind of culture that I wanted to to, to create. Um, I was fortunate that I sold the business many years ago, um, had four and a half, five years in a listed PLC environment. Um, I then did a management buyout 20 years ago. Um, and for me, the culture of the organization and enjoying what I do, the people I work with, and where we we dictate our own pressures is something I'm, I would happily trade um, or not trade rather, because for me that is more important than an extra single pound. 
and to be quite honest, I think that also shows something as well. It's a recognition of the fact that the journey you've been on is um, what's essentially made the business and made yourself as a businessman um, the person you are today because leadership fundamentally is all about learning, isn't it? And without those learning curves that we go through throughout life, um, we can't really improve, can we, and continuously develop? Yeah, I mean, the, the, a very good friend of mine's father, who, who was basically a businessman, once said to me when I was quite young, he said, if you want to be successful, Howard, surround yourself with even more successful people. Um, and a philosophy I've always, I've never been in fear of in this organization is I employ smarter people than myself. So, you know, my, I want to learn from the people that I have working around me and with me. Mm. Um, so across the different areas of our businesses, I make sure that I employ the best people that I can, who I want to learn from personally as well. And I think, you know, recognizing, I said a bit earlier, recognizing that people are the asset mm. in, in this business, you know, my job is to make sure that I have the strongest assets possible. Um, whilst, whilst I believe I'm hopefully a good leader, strong leader, lead from the front, you know, there's, there's, there's no hierarchy in the sense that there's no ivory tails or Chesterfield suites here. But I think recognizing that, you know, there are some very, very talented people in our industry and in our markets, my objective has always been to have those people work with me so I can learn from them. And I'm a big fan of that advice and indeed that quote because Nelson Mandela as well said something very similar. He said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And for a young entrepreneur, I think that is some of the best advice you could possibly, possibly heed. And now thinking about the uh, the future for those younger entrepreneurs that may be out there and listening to this, um, Howard, um, we know that it's going to be quite a tough 12 months to, uh, to come. We know that we're going to have to keep adjusting to the new normal for at least the most part of that until we get to the spring. But in an ideal world, what is it that you are really hoping um, for the business to have achieved in that time? And where do you want to be this time in a year? I think if you if someone could say to me, could you bank where you are today in a year's time, I would take that because I'm very pleased with the performance of the company on a number of levels. That's not just the financials, but it's people, it's their attitude, it's their aptitude, uh, client sectors we work in. So if someone said to me in 12 months' time, you, you know, would you be content, happy, uh, pleased with where you are? Absolutely. Um, I think the reality is, I would ask people, I would, my guidance to people would be just to remain focused. I think the interesting part for me is that it's very easy to be swallowed up by negative messaging. Um, obviously, there's a realism of potential gloom, but I think if you surround your if you surround yourself with people and you want to see a positive, try and see a positive situation and be focused, I think this market will create a new breed of entrepreneur. I think we'll sort of see people coming out of this who perhaps previously didn't have the opportunity because the systems and structures and infrastructures in place in organizations weren't as flexible as they are now. I think people in organizations, it's easier to get noticed because you don't have to walk the physical floor. You know, everything. if you're doing virtual calls, you can get seen, you have increased visibility. So I, I actually think that there will be many positives to come from this current situation because the rule book, um, is being put to one side. I think businesses are having to adapt and be more flexible. I think the skill sets that organizations are going to look for are shifting because I think what we're about to experience coming out of the other side of this is a very, very different looking commercial world. 
I think that's very right. And it's a really positive message that actually for those people out there that will be listening to this who want to be successful and may have that entrepreneurial spirit themselves, because just because there is a crisis like this doesn't mean there won't be opportunities and there will be something there for them to capitalize on if they apply themselves properly. I think that's very, very true. Yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting. If you if you look at you know, omni-channel retailers and those who are very digital literate, they won't refer to this period as a crisis. You know, if you if you speak to renewable energy sectors, they're not viewing this period as a crisis. In other words, there is a health epidemic, health epidemic, that is affecting the world of commerce, but it's affecting businesses who, unfortunately, are not as able to rely on digital. But even in some parts of the hospitality sector, which I feel, you know, I feel you know, observe their pain firsthand, the adoption of a lot of food restaurant businesses to move into delivery takeaway, their margins will have improved. And, mm. you know, the opportunity for to expand is absolute. So there, there is a crisis globally. It's a health pandemic. You know, it's, it's the economic ramifications are severe, but, you know, there are a lot of businesses who are adapting very quickly and very well. And as I said to you, when people look, if you read in history books about the Industrial Revolution and look at the world that was created after that, there was a lot of pain at the time. But, you you know, no one turns around and says that the world was a better place before. You're very, very right. And that is something for everybody listening today to certainly bear in mind going into the uh, the future. And albeit we don't have a crystal ball, it's going to be very interesting to see just what does transpire over the next 12 months and beyond. And just given the amount of variables that there are in that, I actually think it would be wonderful, Howard, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today to catch up and have you back on the programme with us at some point just to see how things are starting to develop. Sure, no, I'd love to. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's a shame we don't have more time on today's programme because I'm sure we could discuss this long into the afternoon, certainly. Um, but I've really, really enjoyed your company on the airwaves, Howard. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. And for yourself, and thanks so much indeed for having me. I'd also like to reiterate that last message to every single one of our listeners tuning into today's programme. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Howard Kosky, CEO and founder of Market Tiers for DC Group of Companies onto today's programme. Um, next up on the show today, uh, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of 
normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home 
the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually 
uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm-hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of 
those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? 
I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial 
for our democracy, all of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.